Welcome to the Free Range Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Vermore. This episode is sponsored by the program on law, communities, and the environment at the University of Virginia School of Law. With me today is Dale Jamison, a professor of environmental studies and philosophy at my alma mater, New York University. He writes on environmental ethics, animal welfare, and climate change. His most recent book with several co-authors is Discerning Experts, the Practices of Scientific Assessment for Environmental Policy, which was published by the University of Chicago Press. Dale, thanks for joining me today. My pleasure, Mike. So you have lots of interesting projects these days, but I thought we might begin by discussing the relationship between animal welfare and environmental ethics, which you've written about and thought a great deal about. In my environmental law class, I usually urge my students to kind of separate out the law, laws that are directed towards animal welfare, you know, things like rules governing animal testing or humane treatment on farms from the traditional environmental laws that are oriented towards, you know, general environmental protection like the Endangered Species Act. And what I'll normally say is something like, you know, an environmental law like the Endangered Species Act might incidentally protect individual animals. They're also consistent with harm to individual animals, um, even including like really serious harm, like eradication of an invasive rat population that's eating uh, the eggs of an endangered bird. So what I'm, I want to make sure I'm not saying anything flagrantly wrong, but I'm also just more generally curious on your thought um, on the relationship between these two um, areas of law or more generally areas of, of um, ethical and moral thought? Well, Mike, I think you are exactly right uh, in your description of the law, although I do think that some things are perhaps beginning to, to change. Uh, and I really want to go back and talk about how we, how we got to where we are in this, in this respect. And I think, as is so often the case, it requires recovering a very naive thought, the sort of thought that we probably had, you know, when we were 19 years old or even children have. And that thought is really that protecting the environment and protecting animals really come from the same sense of compassion or the same sense of respect for other living things that we that we live with. And... In fact, if you go back, uh, certainly in the animal protection movement, but also in the environmental movement, you really see a lot of the same figures and you see a lot of crossover in ideas in this, in this respect. In fact, um, I think one little anecdote that brings this out is the first kind of book-length critique of factory farming was a book by Ruth Harrison, uh, mm-hmm. who was a British thinker. It was published in the early 1960s. And interestingly enough, the foreword to that book is written by Rachel Carson. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they had never met each other. They had a friend in common who saw them as being, you know, sympathetic people, travelers on the same road. And that led to Rachel Carson writing the foreword to that, to that book. So I think there's a lot uh, in our sort of in people's basic sensibility that brings them to one of these subjects or the other that leads to a lot of you know, overlap and commonality of thought. But of course, then what happens is a lot of separation uh, sets in. And I think that separation becomes kind of very strong in the later 60s and in the 70s. Uh, you know, all of those early environmental laws that you're referring to really have no interest. They show no interest or cognizance, really, uh, at all about individual animal welfare. 
um, as the animal protection movement begins to grow uh, in the 1970s. A, a lot of people are attracted to the animal welfare movement who are interested in dogs and cats and domestic animals and uh, issues like that and, and really aren't environmentalists or sort of don't self-identify as environmentalists. And, you know, by the time we get to the 1980s, uh, you know, as someone who identifies very strongly both as an environmentalist and an animal protectionist, I would find myself in different communities with radically different values. So I would go to environmental events and, you know, people would be serving veal or something for the conference dinner. And I would be at animal events where people would just scorn, you know, heap scorn on environmentalists. I think I think these movements are being brought together now to some extent around climate change. But this is still a very kind of uneasy and contingent relationship. Yes. I mean, I, I completely agree. And so, um, I mean, maybe we can think a little bit about, um, I'm just thinking kind of almost like practically or, or, or um, you know, kind of, kind of how, to, how to think about areas of conflict. So one of, the th one of the areas that I think is interesting, again, this is just like a hypo I use in class sometimes, um, or, um, is to just try to kind of manage this intuition is um, like interventions in nature. So um, if, if I'm curious what you think of this. So like imagine someone's very strong animal welfare orientation and they kind of reject an action in action distinction. <laughs> um, and so the idea is there are predator prey relationships and lots of things that happen out in, 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 in natural ecosystems are actually really just cause a lot of suffering. And, you know, maybe it would be better if we, you know, fed soy pellets to the lions and then the, you know, the gazelles wouldn't suffer, you know, as a consequence of being eaten for food all the time. And, you know, I, it, it's, I think it strikes a lot of people that that would be kind of bonkers, but um, at the same time, just from a, from a straight alleviating suffering perspective, it doesn't strike me as all that crazy. Um, but, I, but I think the environmentalist instinct would be, no, 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 we don't want to do anything like that. That would be a really bad idea. And so um, I'm wondering, again, it, 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 is this like illuminating hypo? And, and does, it, does it tell us anything instructive about the relationship between this notion of animal welfare and, and environmental protection? Well, it's, it's an illuminating hypo. And in fact, it's in the literature, and I, the the person I think of as sort of introducing this, uh, is Tyler Tyler Cohen, the economist at George Mason University, who wrote a paper a few years ago called "Policing Nature," <clears throat> which is on exactly this subject. But then, of course, what often happens is that it's you know it's not always easy to tell what's a feature and what's a bug when it comes to a theory, and uh, and this idea has certainly been in, embraced now by some animal protectionist philosophers. So there's a lot of work that's being done on wild animal suffering and how to think about wild animal suffering. And a lot of people who write in that tradition really come very close to advocating, you know, all kinds of intervention in nature. Now, I, I'm on the side of thinking that there's something kind of bonkers about that. But it's not so easy, as, as I think you were suggesting, to sort of say what's bonkers about that once you accept certain very plausible assumptions. Um, but I think, I mean, we can talk more about this, but I think the, the diagnosis of this really should, you know, really, you know, really pushes you back into the direction of, well, what's 
ethics about, what's moral decision-making about, uh, you know, what, what is this enterprise about in the first place. Um, and, and I think it's granting certain assumptions there that sort of get you to the crazy place at the end, at the end of the road. So is it, just to think about candidates there, is, is it something like the action in action distinction where, you know, we're more morally responsible for the stuff we do and, and, and things that we don't do? Because that seems like it could get us at least potentially out of this problem is to say, okay, when we're, um, when you have custodial animals and you're running a farm, if you're going to be running a farm or you have domestic animals, you have pets and the like, you know, you've taken on a certain kind of responsibility and you have a particular role with respect to these um, animals and that role comes with obligations and um, so on and so forth. But, you know, with respect to nature, um, you just haven't taken on those kinds of responsibilities. You don't have a role. It's just an independent system and it operates by its own logic and, you know, morality, or at least with respect to certain kinds of moral obligations that one might have, you just, they don't apply. Um, and so that seems that one road, I, Personally, I don't find that all that attractive, I don't think, although maybe I could be brought around. But um, so that strikes me as one possible um, way around the issue. And maybe it's also just thinking about what matters with respect to animals and, and why we care about them in the first place. And maybe suffering isn't the be all end all of, of our obligations there. Yeah, so I, I do think the action in action distinction pushes the issue back in a more foundational direction. But the action-inaction distinction itself poses a lot of the same issues, as I, and I think this is perhaps one of the things that's on your mind. So intuitively, this is a very strong intuition that people have, right? That, it, that letting something happen isn't morally as bad as actually doing the thing yourself. So it's a, I mean, it's foundational to Catholic moral theology and it's, you know, you do trolleyology and you very easy to kind of elicit this, this intuition. But, you know, and there is something right about it, but I think, well, so let's put it this way. It's easy to show what's wrong with it. Hmm. And the way that you show what's wrong with this distinction, or at least thinking that it's a distinction of intrinsic moral significance, is to present cases in which you, in which exactly the same outcomes are produced, but in some mm -hmm. cases they're produced by action, and in other cases they're produced by cost, by inaction, when you could actually intervene in a cost-free way with no side effects, etc., etc. And that discussion really goes back to Jim Rachel's papers probably in the 80s on active and passive euthanasia. Uh, and, and this is really, you know, this is where this distinction becomes both important and, and a bit horrifying, is it's still pretty deep in our medical ethics, uh, mm -hmm. in our thinking about medical ethics, that it's okay to let people die, but it's not okay to kill them. And in some cases, that can lead to outcomes that at least I think are horrific, um, because you let people suffer not being able to intervene to end their lives. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, so there's real stuff just about people that, that turn on this. But what I think is right about this intuition and what drives it has to do with really ignorance. And I think, you know, I, so I think, so, so let's take yet another step back in a more foundational direction. I mean, the point of ethics is really uh, to, to, you know, to help guide what it is that we ought to do. The point of ethics isn't to sort of describe the moral structure of the universe, you know, in the way that we might think physics is. And so it's not at all surprising 
that when it comes to hypotheticals, that our moral thinking just breaks down because it, it, it hasn't been trained up to do mm -hmm. hypotheticals. That's not where its value lies. Its value is about, is about guiding our behavior. And when you think about guiding our behavior then, the, the fact that we're in this world that has a certain structure and part of the structure of that world is natural selection, then, you know, the decisions that we make and what it is that we can do and what it is that we can manage is, is all going to go on in, inside of that. Mm -hmm. And I think part of what happens with the concern for wild animal suffering is it starts with, you know, this important compassionate intuition that nature is a horrible and a crucial, you know, a, a kind of horrible place in many ways. Mm -hmm. And then it sort of pulls morality outside of nature and really asks the question, well, if we were gods, you know, how, how would we make the world? And, you know, and, and it might be that if we were gods, we should make a different kind of world mm -hmm. than the one that exists. But that doesn't tell us anything about what we ought to do, uh, given that we're in the world that we find ourselves in, situated in the way we are, and have the radically incomplete uh, knowledge of that world that we have. Well, this is really interesting. And I think, you know, just getting into, into hypotheticals, just maybe this is a little bit of a digression, but I, I tend to really agree. Obviously, in law schools, we love talking about hypotheticals. And my, um, I think this would be a new hobby horse of mine is just that you have to be really careful with hypotheticals. You have to be really careful with them because um, I think what we sometimes will do, um, so, so this, uh, th this is one that, that is used all the time. It's the kind of the, you know, torturing someone if there's a ticking time bomb in downtown Manhattan or something like that. And, you know, and this hypo is used kind of as a um, argument against utilitarianism. It's argued in favor or whatever. And usually you take certain things off the table. Uh, so this would actually be the case, I think, in the animal suffering one that we're talking about is that someone will just say, oh, just take ignorance off it. Assume that we could intervene in nature in some way to reduce, you know, widespread suffering. And we will understand the consequences of that suffering, you know, or of that intervention reasonably well or something like that. But you put some constraints on the hypothetical. And I think what happens then is it's very dangerous because then our intuitions become kind of we'll still have the intuition that it's a bad idea, but we won't be able to make recourse to the justification that's really driving that. And so we'll come up with something else. And so like in the torture case, you'd say, oh, well, you know that torture is gonna get this information that will, you know, um, will lead to, you know, a million people's lives being saved. And, and you still don't wanna to torture, you know, you still wanna say, no, that's bad. And maybe part of that is, you don't think torture is effective and how could you possibly know that it was going to be, you know, it was going to work or even have a good probabilistic judgment about something like that, but you can't make recourse to that anymore. And so you start talking about rights or some other kind of underlying rationale for, for your intuition. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And, and one of the kind of oddities of this is that we know from social psychology that we think in terms of sort of clusters of features and stereotypes and, pro and prototypes and so on. Uh, but somehow we have this idea that wh whether it's a law class or an introductory ethics class, that we can just instruct the students mm -hmm. to just uh, sanitize the case from 
all of the things that being human and having a human brain actually brings into the contemplation of the case. And of course, what's even weirder is that we as legal academics or philosophers somehow think that we're also immune mm -hmm. from how human psychology works and can reason in that kind of vacuum. Yeah. So, but, but I do think there's a kind of related interesting thing going on here, which is the kind of we're not God's <laughs> point, which is that our intuitions about um, things like intervening in nature or, you know, pretty much everything for that matter, um, you know, they come about either, you know, in a kind of very big, I don't know, whatever Darwinian psychology way, or just in our, through our culture um, that developed in different contexts right? Where humans ability to even contemplate doing something like, uh, you know, again, intervening in nature to reduce animal suffering is just, it's just not something we could have done, even if we had wanted to, um, at all, like not even in the realm of something to, that would be worthy of consideration. But now we kind of live in a technological environment where we could potentially, at least in some limited way, obviously not take over the entire planet, although we have kind of taken over the whole planet, but um, but in some limited way, um, say within a national park or something like that, uh, manage certain relationships to reduce animal suffering. But, um, you know, we're kind of, so the, I think there's just an interesting question of, are we ill served by our intuitions in that case, the same way that we are about, you know, um, you know, I want to eat donuts all the time <laughs> because, uh, you know, my ancestors, uh, you know, uh, survived more when they, when they sought out sweet and fattening things. And, um, you know, that's not a, that, 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 that doesn't serve me well these days. Um, and I wonder if, you know, there's a similar concern, especially in these areas where technological development has been so profound and it really just changes the scope of what we can contemplate, you know, thinking ethically about. Yeah, I, 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 think, uh, I think the way I would put at least a related point is to say that we underestimate the effects, the incremental effects of modest actions, and we overestimate our ability to direct and assess and evaluate the consequences of large-scale actions. So, um, I mean, just to give you a, so a, a couple of examples, I mean, on, on the latter point, it's, it's just quite obvious, right? I mean, Silicon Valley is full of people who, who think that you know, immortality is just the matter of getting a bunch of smart coders together, basically. Um, you know, so, so, so that kind, the kind of grandiosity of thinking uh, is, is just so obviously prevalent in our culture. But on the other point, I mean, climate change is obviously a kind of classic case of uh, world-changing macro-level outcomes coming about from small incremental actions on the part mm -hmm. of people. But there's, but there's other things, bef you know, prior to that, that we don't even think about. Um, I mean, I, sort of, I grew up in a kind of pre-computer world. And that world was really, really different. I mean, it was a world of, you know, file cabinets and letter writing and, 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 and things like that. And I'm not, uh, you know, uh, sort of a bad enough person to say, oh, yeah, those were the good old days. The world was so, was so much better. Than, you know, but it's, but it's not as though anybody ever did a benefit-cost analysis of uh, computerizing the world. 
Mm -hmm. I mean, nobody ever sat down and said, let's make everything digital. And we've taken into account what the energy demands of that will be and what the privacy implications of that will be. And the fact that you will drive all the brick and mortar store, you know, you'll gut retail in lots of cities, you know, around the world, because it's actually all worth it for that reason. So that that's not what happened is, mm -hmm. you know, a bunch of people made a bunch of decisions uh, about their own products and their own marketing and their own efficiencies. And it led to an incredible remake of the world in ways that nobody really much thought about in, you know, in advance. And of course, even the whole thing of shopping on Amazon is like that, for example, right? I mean, the, mm -hmm. same, the, the, the same people who shop on Amazon, namely all of us, complain about what's, what's happening to small businesses in our communities. Right. Right. And so this is, I mean, this just gets us to, again, I think just a really tough question in the, in the modern world, which is, you know, our actions can just spin out of control in some sense. Um, you know, we have our we have our limited domain of um, of in, we have a huge amount of influence actually in some sense, right? Especially collectively, and um, it's all it's just very hard to anticipate. You know, kind of what what those consequences are going to be. We have kind of a there's a mismatch between our ability to understand even just simple things like you know what's going to happen when I do this. Um, and the, our actual consequences, put aside even things like our, our intuitions and whether those are going to be good guides for us. Um, I mean, this would be a kind of argument against consequentialism in, in some sense is that if, if you, it just requires a capacity that we just don't have and we just have to limit our scope. But on the other hand, you know, in cases like climate change, you know, we, we you know, you know, releasing carbon dioxide into the atmosphere isn't, isn't an, a, a harm in any you know, kind of foundational sense. It's only just because it, of happenstance of how the atmosphere works and the reality of like that everybody else is doing it simultaneously that it becomes bad. So it, we, it, I feel like within the environmental world, at least we're kind of stuck between these two positions of, um, you know, just this very, very complicated world that's very difficult to anticipate, but where our actions really do have profound consequences. So I think it's an argument against certain direct forms of consequentialism that we ought to be going around computing, you know, the consequences of all of our actions. But I don't think it's an argument against more indirect forms of consequentialism. And I think this really takes us into some issues of uh, policy, public <clears throat> policy and the way that we now think about political issues is, you know, when those first generation environmental laws were passed uh, that you began this conversation by alluding to, I, I think there was a pretty strong social consensus, at least among the political elites in both the Democratic and Republican parties, that, um, that, that as individuals, we need to be restrained from uh, acting on the basis of our own perceived short-term self-interest because we will collectively produce outcomes that we don't want. Mm -hmm. I, I think that was, and I think it was widely viewed as this is the function of government, uh, at least one of the important functions of government, to actually act in those kinds of cases. And the environmental philosopher Mark Sagoff, who was also kind of a prankster and jokester, um, I think, um, you know, one way that he sort of expressed that in his life is I, I remember this very vividly. He, he used to drive around with a car that had a bumper sticker that said, I am polluting the atmosphere. <laughs> and it, 
it really encapsulated this whole thought because, you know, on the one hand, he's saying, yes, I know I am polluting the atmosphere. Let's just recognize that. I'm going to drive. I'm going to pollute. And that's why we need air pollution regulations because I need to be restrained from the very behavior that I'm actually engaging in here and now. But I think we've lost that consensus about the role of government, uh, certainly in the United States. And I think the pandemic brought this out really clearly because uh, the kind of public health measures, uh, you know, that are that that are the rational ones to take with respect uh, to a pandemic, are you know, were viewed in great many quarters as you know contravening the proper function of government because precisely because it prevented individuals from acting on the basis of their own perceptions of their own immediate self-interest. Yeah. And this seems, it, this kind of dovetails in the environmental context, which with kind of almost a movement or I'm not quite sure how to, how to describe it, but there's in the last you know couple of decades, a, a lot of emphasis on individual behavior in the climate context that, you know, we have kind of an individual moral responsibilities. If you care about climate, you know, you should be putting up solar panels or driving uh, a hybrid vehicle or an electric car or whatever, or living in a city, you know, doing away with the car altogether. Um, but it's kind of an individual moral choice, ethical choice. And and you kind of get these criticisms like Al Gore, you know, he can't care about climate change, his house is so big. Um, and of course that just reframes the whole conversation away from what can governments do in a, in a kind of question of politics to individual choice. And, you know, th that has always seemed to me to be, you know, kind of wrongheaded and depowering. But I, in a sense, I understand it because I think for a lot of folks, the political domain just seems like a, like a dead end. Yeah, well, I mean, so on, on most of these issues, I <laughs> just to preface what I'm going to say, you know, there's so much blame to go around as to why we <laughs> failed to address these issues. We could we could spend all day pointing fingers at, at, at everyone, including ourselves, because it sort of goes back to the way we think about these hypotheticals. We're not immune from these mm -hmm. generalizations that govern, you know, our human thinking and human behavior. But one of the ways I think that policy types uh, are to be faulted is, you know, uh, sort of a lot of the language, cap and trade, and just the whole thing, uh, and, you know, stop privatizing everything, you know, volunteerism, bad, government, you know, government regulation, good, is, first of all, it failed to be sensitive to these changing values in American society mm. towards greater emphasis on, indivi on, on individual behavior, individual integrity, individual rights, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, 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 and so I think a lot of the sort of policy talk with respect to climate was sort of still living in that late 60s, 1970s consensus view about about what the role of government was and and we just weren't living in that world any, anymore and that's part of why people were talking in this more individualist way it wasn't the cause of the problem so to speak it was just a reflection of these changing cultural values and then and then of course the more complicated discussion it is it is the more general one about well what is the relationship between individual and collective behavior anyway because any view that sort of tries to detach them from 
completely from each other is is, is got to be wrong. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, this is really interesting. This is a kind of a political um, reality that we're uh, there's a kind of a disjoint between the policy conversation, and we kind of got stuck in a particular way of thinking about talking about climate change um, or environmental issues more generally while the culture was shifting in a more individualistic fashion. I mean, part of me wonders kind of two different things. So one possibility is that we could still, um, it's just a matter of how we talk and reason at some level, um, that we could kind of pursue similar policies or similar policy goals or even potentially similar policy instruments by um, describing them in, um, in, in different ways and, and kind of making recourse to these more individual level values. Um, that's one possibility. The other possibility would just be that the culture has changed in a way which has just made it much harder for us to achieve collective ends through collective institutions. Um, I don't know if you have a, <laughs> have a sense of which, which one of those paths you think is more likely. Yeah, I, I, uh, I don't, <laughs> but... <laughs> But of course, it doesn't stop me from talking. Um, I, I, I mean, part of the problem, I think, is that we went from this broad consensus about what the what the proper role of government was, and it, it included restraining human behavior, you know, our individual behavior, to uh, to you know, to when we began to sense that there was some separation here, then I think a, a lot of the policy community became elitist in, mm. in political community as well, the, the political class, in the sense of thinking, well, we can still do these things, we just have to fool people with mm-hmm. them, you know? And in a way, cap and trade was like that, right? I mean, we're, we're, we're going to, you know, we're, we're going to put a price on carbon, but uh, you're not really going to know that we did that because we're going to put it several steps back in the supply chain. Mm-hmm. And we're, you know, and, and we're not going to call it, we're not going to give it a nasty name like a tax or anything or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, I remember the moment of clarity for me with this in, in, in this area, um, which is, you know, I mean, look, I was, you know, I, I was definitely on board with this, what the view of government was and sort of, the, and I still am in terms of, you know, what the kind of conventional environmental policies would still do an enormous amount of good if we could only figure out how to enact them. So I'm not mm-hmm. some, you know, screaming, uh, you know, we just have to worship Mother Nature. That's the only solution kind of guy here. Um, you know, I'm a good, I'm, 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 I'm a nice neoliberal uh, intellectual, like, you know, to at least to some extent, like all of us. But, um, mm-hmm. but I remember one moment, you know, we would talk about Pagovian taxes and all this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And I remember looking at some interview data where you know we're asking people about what they would accept in terms of taxes on gasoline and mm-hmm. so on. this was actually in the Clinton years you know when there was during the BTU tax mm-hmm. in the early 90s and and what you got if you looked at the interview data was uh, overwhelmingly yeah people would actually be willing to pay more for gasoline but but almost inevitably they would say as long as it doesn't mean that I have to drive less <laughs> Whatever that means. Well, I mean, what that means is, is that they would not accept the level of tax that would change their behavior, which mm-hmm. was the whole point of imposing the tax from a policy perspective. And once you get that dissociation, 
then the policy community has to sort of then figure out how to impose these behavior changing policies without people actually recognizing that that's what's going on. And of course, I think that's one of the things that sets up a lot of the political failures for liberal liberals, you know, in, in subsequent decades. But it also abandons another kind of deep strand of liberalism, American liberalism, that goes back to people like John Dewey and I think is still hugely important, which is, you know, the only way we get anywhere is to do stuff together. And the only way to do stuff together is through transparency and education. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so this kind of gets us into some other really interesting issues, but, but one related one, I think this kind of builds off of this is, you know, I think a lot of the, the, the concern at some level or the, the underlying challenge is, um, you know, the, the, the kind of, there are lots of kind of important values questions that are at stake in, in something like, um, you know, whether we want to address climate change and how and how much and, and all of that. And, you know, just kind of moving forward with the elite versus, um, you know, a broader group of people in, in society. I remember at some point, um, again, years ago, I was um, when the social cost of carbon was first um, being discussed as a, as, a, as a way of valuing um, benefit of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. I was at a, a, a conference of economists. And one question that was just very briefly noted was, well, of course, we use a global social cost of carbon. So we use the, um, the estimation of damages based on damages that are caused worldwide from, a, from the release of you know, a ton of emissions in the US or wherever else. And, um, and I agree with that, uh, you know, uh, as a, uh, just that's kind of, I think, the right thing to do. But it also was very clear to me that that was going to be at an angle of attack on the social cost of carbon. And of course, uh, under the Trump administration, it was. The, the point there was to say, you know, what the Trump administration said basically is that we should focus on just the effects in the United States from reductions in greenhouse gas emissions that we undertake. And of course, the effects in the United States are only a small part of the effects on the world. And that's a values question about, you know, are we cosmopolitans? Are we nationalists? Um, what obligations do we owe to folks you know, outside the United States when making decisions here? And you know, I think for a lot of folks in the environmental community who would, I think, take a more cosmopolitan orientation towards these questions, they're just, you know, there's a, there's some serious space there <laughs> between where they are and where, um, you know, a lot of other folks are. And I'm just, I'm just not sure. I think there's an instinct to want to then translate the whole uh, conversation into a, a technocratic conversation because um, folks are afraid that if we really confront the values question head on, they're just going to lose. Yeah. So uh, I think you are so right on about that. And I remember thinking those same thoughts during that whole discussion. But the thing that in a way surprised me is that I don't think that certainly economists in general or even environmental policy people are generally such consistent cosmopolitans in the first Mm. place. They're you know, I mean, if you just think a lot of the economic analysis that gets done, it's very domestically oriented, I mean, generally. And if you do raise questions about, well, you know, what would be the impact of this say, in developing countries, people look at you, you know, and, and, and basically, you know, that's an irrelevant question. That's not what you're thinking about. But yet in some contexts, like the social cost of carbon, 
the assumption just gets made without any discussion or noting or noting it at all. And I actually think to a great extent, I mean, this is a hunch, a hypothesis, you know, that it's, it's, it's driven more by uh, sort of technocratic ease than it, mm. than it is by moral commitment. Um, it, you know, just given the kind of, you know, if you just think about the Nordhaus models or something and you think about damage functions, it's just kind of easier to throw the whole thing into one big model than to just try to figure out what the impacts would be in the 50 states, you know, of North America that constitute the United States. Um, I, I think that drives it as much as any cosmopolitan values. Oh, that's really interesting. That's a, it's just the guy. It's definitely true. It's way easier to estimate. I, I mean, to the, it's hard to do any of this, but it's easier to estimate damages at a global level than it is to try to then parse them out. I mean, to do it in the state of Virginia or or something like that would be speed. It would be guesswork at best. Um, but so so it, you know, it's an interesting. Um, it, that is an interesting point. I think that may they may, that may well be um, part of part of what's going on. Um, I do think though there is a broader um, instinct in our system, and I, it's not nefarious. It's just something that's part of our debate or part of our political culture. Is um, when there are deep values questions to then translate those into um, technocratic uh, forum forums or technocratic language, or um, present them as kind of purely scientific inquiries. Um, and that just is a feature. It happens in environmental law all the time. So, you know, we, uh, instead of asking about what our responsibilities are to future generations, we start talking about discount rates. Uh, when we, instead of talking about um, how to balance the, um, the economic effects of improved air quality against the, the value of reducing mortality risk, we talk about, um, you know, uh, protecting public health with an adequate margin of safety. That's the national ambient air quality standards. And so um, we kind of treat uh, questions that are really fundamentally values laden um, in, a, in a technocratic way. And I always, you know, I can t- continually turn over in my head whether this is a good or a bad thing. The, the you know, the, the part of me that likes clean thinking <laughs> uh, doesn't like that. But then, you know, as a pragmatic response to the reality of kind of deep pluralism and political disagreement, uh, maybe, maybe it works well enough. This is something I know that you've given some thought to. Yeah, I mean, so I, I agree completely with what you're saying about the phenomenon. And I think, in fact, it's it's becoming more extreme all, all the time. And, um, and let me just give you something about what I think is the genealogy of the phenomenon and then, mm. uh, and then, and then come back with uh, something that is going to sound either deeply depressing or uh, <laughs> unreasonably optimistic. But... I think the genealogy goes something like this. Um, so, so when there is a broad consensus that we face some problems, and we all agree what the problems are, the sort of, you know, the, the stereotype of the sort of 50s, 60s view, right, where the idea was there were no more deep ideological divides, you know, it was mm-hmm. just, we, we have these social problems and we just need to do a bit of engineering, you know, to lead us off into the ever more glorious future. Um, you know, then thinking of these problems in a technocratic way is, at least in principle, supported by this broad social convince, con- consensus about values, about what the problems are and what and what counts as solutions. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but then when this starts getting to be dissociated, which was what we were talking about earlier, right? Um, where the sort of policy elite sort of is sort of bandying about these solutions to things that people don't necessarily think are problems or if they think they're problems, they're, they're not sort of on the same wavelength about what they would be willing to do to address them. Then that's when we start getting into sort of smuggling the values into the technical analysis, mm-hmm. right? Because that's then, you know, we can, sort of, we can, so to speak, make people better off than they would be willing to do themselves or <laughs> right. even voluntarily accept, right? That's, that's, that's where the difference goes. Um, and, but of course, you know, almost inevitably, that leads to this kind of populist outrage mm-hmm. against policy elites, you know, which Hillary Clinton symbolized in the, in the, you know, for so for so many people. I mean, um, now what's so? I mean, that's the sort of diagnosis of the problem, the natural history of the problem. But now, going back to the solutions or whatever, um, you know, I mean, first of all, it's not clear to me that the value divides in America are really as great as they seem, and. The, the reason for that is because we don't actually talk about values. We just scream at each other on Twitter, mm-hmm. you know, mainly manipulating symbols and memes. The, the problem with values and with value differences uh, is that to even get to mutual accommodation and respect requires long and deep conversation. And we're actually back to Socrates. You know, I'm now going to do a pitch for philosophy. Um, you know, it's, the, again, the sort of thing Dewey talked about when he talked about democracy as a way of life. Um, he didn't see it as being even primarily about voting in the way that we do today. And sometimes when this issue is raised to me, it's like, so, so what do you do, you know, when people have these really deep differences in their views? And I say... Well, you know, if I had a semester to talk to them, I'll, I'll bet they would come out with different views and there would be more mutual respect. But who has a semester except for 18-year-olds, mm-hmm. basically, right? And, and so I think that's part of the problem. I mean, I think there is a path forward to, you know, what do they call that in military campaigns? They call de-conflicting the, mm-hmm. the the battle zone. I think mm-hmm. we could we could deconflict some of this battle zone, but it would require dealing with value problems in a more direct way, and involve accepting some rules of the road about how to discuss them and about some serious time commitments uh, about how to work through them. Yeah, that that is. Um... Yeah, that's a it's a heavy lift. <laughs> I think that's that's the tricky part of this, and um, part of what I um, you know this like leads us into thinking about kind of deliberative democracy and and you know the, the uh, um, that way of understanding what it means to live in a democratic society that we're kind of um, consistently interacting with each other and and um, in an open minded way. There, I think there's two interesting. Um, challenges to that. Uh, I'm attracted to this, of course, you know, naturally, I think it, it sounds like a very attractive version of, of how democracy works or what politics can be. Um, I think there are two interesting things that I've kind of ex- experienced or seen that um, 
uh, create some skepticism for me. So one is um, the conflict between um, like kind of interests and deliberation. So um, in many deliberative institutions, um, what can end up happening is that the deliberators, it's kind of a hawk dove situation where the deliberators are the doves and the non-deliberators are the hawks and the deliberators can be very easily manipulated and um, you know, kind of overcome by the hawks. So like the a classic example I think of is the filibuster rule in the Senate, which is actually intended to protect debate <laughs> um, and deliberation and protect, um, you know, uh, just create a forum where minority voices are heard at least. And of course it just gets turned into a, a tool um, of partisan manipulation. It's got nothing to do with actually facilitating deliberation. Um, and so kind of the person who's open-minded and enters into a deliberative forum ends up being kind of exploited exploited by the people who are not open-minded and just kind of have a set of interests that they want to achieve through the forum. So this is kind of one problem. Then there's a, another set of issues, which I think is just, again, I just don't know how to get my head around, which is there's social science evidence that people, um, that the folks who are interested in participating in politics um, when they're exposed to other views, they become less interested in, in participating in politics. There seems to be some kind of tension between deliberation and open-mindedness and exposure to alternative views and all of that, and just participation. Um, and if you look at American history, the periods where you see the most participation and the most interest in politics are the most polarized. And just in, in, in the course of my life, I've seen that as I mean, we're in a moment where people are more engaged in politics than I've ever seen. <laughs> and people are paying attention. They're, you know, the people vote, they talk about politics, they're really engaged. And it's very different from when I started off in all of this a couple of decades ago. And, um, you know, that that's a good thing in some sense. And but it, but if it always rides along with partisanship and polarization, then it's then it's not all that attractive. So yeah, I'd be curious. Yeah, curious to hear your thoughts on. I, I just find those to be dilemmas. Right. So this, I mean, so there's a fork here between going deeper and going cruder. And so I'm going to, of course, do a little bit of both. Um, so the deeper thing goes back to what do we mean by politics? And mm. I, I actually think there's very little. Go I mean, there's very little going on now that's real mm. politics. Um, mm. I don't think. I, I don't think you can. The best way to understand the Trump phenomenon uh, is through concepts like fandom, mm. and through various kinds of social psychological processes. Uh, it, it it's not really much of a political movement. Um, That's interesting. And it, it, I mean, let's put it this way: it certainly would be unrecognizable as politics. Mm -hmm. by much of the history of political theory and political philosophy. Um, so um, so it's one of those things where actually to move in a more deliberative direction, you just have to go deeper and even more foundationally. Um, I mean, the other thought that I'll add to that is I think it was Keynes who who said that when the economy is 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 working is functioning, economists should be thought of as being like plumbers. They should mm -hmm. basically be invisible and just keep the pipes going. And I think something like that, it, it's reasonable to think something like that could be true of politics as well. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. that you know, in a certain sense, a well functioning political system 
is is not one that's characterized by what we think of as political activism, but that doesn't mean that people aren't interested and concerned. So, you know, so there's a lot to talk about and think about there. Now, just for to to bounce it up to the cruder thought, I I myself am not sure that even the best kind of democracy can successfully address problems like climate change. Mm. And in a way, uh, you can think of the world as being involved in a kind of natural experiment where we have these avowedly democratic states and we have these not perhaps avowedly, but definitely authoritarian states. Um, and they're both dealing with many of the same kinds of issues, including climate change. Now, what is amazing to me, if you look at how this natural experiment has evolved over, say, the last decade, is that the resources of democratic states have been flagging and the weaknesses of democratic states have become ever more prominent. So so the democ the democratic states have are leaning heavily in the direction of something like some version of sort of anarchism or uh, pop you know sort of populist and it's hard to even find a language for it mm -hmm. but not expressing the democratic virtues and of course what's happening on the other side is the authoritarian states are becoming more authoritarian so the world that we're living in is one where increasingly the options of business as usual politically, as well as business as usual in all sorts of other areas, are just looking less and less and less attractive all the time. So there needs to be, you know, it, it, again, it's like it's 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 like um, it's like the old the old joke. Um, if 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 we keep you know, if we don't like where we're going, then, you know, we, we better stop walking in that direction, um, <laughs> you know, and, and try something new. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it's, I think there's this kind of related interesting phenomenon that ties back to the point you make a little earlier, which is um, about the unintended or unforeseen or unforeseeable consequences of, of technology and, and kind of the digitization of everything. I think there's an argument to be made that Essentially, that's what's kind of happened is that the most recent wave of technology, at least within the political domain, has had a per pernicious effect on democracies. This is arguable, but this, I think that would be the line of thinking. Um, this may be maybe paradigmatically in the U.S., but, but maybe elsewhere as well, um, and has kind of um, made it more difficult to achieve anything like a social consensus, and it exacerbates division and um, undermines our uh, institutions and so on. Whereas the same technologies um, have actually empowered authoritarian states. So, so now, you know, um, uh, in Russia, people are just being bombarded with inf with false information about um, what's happening with respect to Ukraine, and um, the Chinese government can can monitor uh, folks at a at a deep level through facial recognition and other. Um, this kind of the social merit system and, and other digitally empowered um, tools of oversight that just were unimaginable um, a little while ago. And, and all things being equal, this is just 
reduced the relative um, attraction just as a functioning polity, as a way of setting up a society of democracies versus authoritarian states. Um, I don't know that I buy that full story, but it's a very depressing one, <laughs> uh, I think. So then the question is, you know, if we, it, it sounds a little technologically determinist, which I, I suspect is a position you don't endorse. And so I wonder, um, we do have to recognize these things are happening in our environment, though, and respond accordingly. So um, I'm wondering if you have thoughts about, you know, given that the technology is with us um, and probably is going to, you know, continue to grow um, and become more prevalent, then what is what are some of our options or at least what are some of the experiments that we might contemplate? Yeah, well, so here's the thing, right? I, I'm not a technological determinist, but technology looks deterministic when you have the gutting of the state, basically. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I'll just give you an example of this from some work that I'm, I'm doing now. Um, I'm working on a project with some people at Harvard Law School, which is a 15-country study of live animal markets. This was a study that was sort of set off in the wake of the of the COVID epidemic, but it's not just about the COVID epidemic. It's generally about somatic disease, evolution, and transmission. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that's clear from the study so far, we haven't published anything yet and it's not gone public, but so much of these live animal, I mean, we have this image of live animal markets, which, you know, are these nasty, horrible things like mm -hmm. Wuhan or whatever. But a lot of the live animal trade has gone online. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and so you sort of begin with the weaknesses of most nation states in regulating this trade in the first place. And then you just move all this stuff online and suddenly the regulators, if there are regulators, are all sitting in Silicon Valley, basically, <laughs> right? Um, so nation states even lose the, you know, the power to regulate in that way. So that, I mean, that's not a feature of the technology, that's a feature of the way that we are organizing the, the world and the relationship between corporate power and, and, and state power. Right. So that's another kind of dimension of the, of, in the equation at some level, there's, there's the kind of democracy versus um, authoritarianism, but then obviously the, the kind of political inequality and uh, economic vast economic inequality that we have um, in, in society, that that, you know, that plays a, a tremendous role in, in affecting how all this stuff um, plays out. I mean, I think of the, the whole cryptocurrency question and the capacity of the state. I mean, I think of that technology as almost explicitly oriented towards, it derives its value <laughs> in substantial respect from um, its ability to to help act or circumvent uh, state oversight. And yet we seem to in, be embracing it as a society in a really, um, I don't know if we're, it, it seems like we're moving, it, it, embracing it in a pretty substantial way. I mean, maybe it will all collapse tomorrow, but that doesn't seem like the way things are going. Right. No, I mean, it, it, I mean, one of the interesting, I mean, it goes, go, going back to that thought that authoritarian states are becoming more authoritarian and democratic states are beginning to show increasingly the defects of democratic systems that go back to, you know, the critiques of Plato and Aristotle and others. Um, you know, it, it, I mean, I don't want to be misunderstood about this because it's not like I'm a cheerleader for the Chinese government or anything. Right, right. But, but, but in a way, uh, the, the Chinese state is almost, it's almost like a demonstration project to see whether the state 
can remain in control of the society and the economy in a, in a globalized world. Um, I mean, in the European Union, there are these attempts to do that as well, I think, modulated through democratic norms and institutions. But I also think it's pretty clear that, in the, that the EU is, is increasingly losing control of corporate power. Um, and in the United States, we've just given up on it. I mean, all the, you know, the students I teach who really want to change the world and do something wonderful, all want to become uh, uh, work in social investment and social entrepreneurship because that the, the way that they think you change the world is by becoming capitalists, basically, because they don't take the idea of state power and authority seriously anymore. Right, which is not... You know, in, in, in fairness, and I see a lot of this in my students as well. And and these are law students, of course. <laughs> and uh, and the uh, in fairness, you know, um, on what seem a lot of pressing social issues, um, you know, we don't seem to be able to arrive at the kind of consensus necessary to bring to bear the power of the state. And I think that what is what we need to be reminded of in some levels is that. Um, there is dissensus on important questions. Actually, the state is incredibly powerful in, in the U.S. and it can really in, engenders all kinds of economic growth and it kind of makes everything runs on the state in some level, right? There's, there is no Twitter <laughs> without uh, all of the in, incredible capacity of the state that we have in the U.S. It's just that I think that, that, that what, what is often very troubling is that you look at an issue like climate change, especially if you've been working on it for a little while and it is incredibly pressing, incredibly important. What frustrates, what I find infinitely frustrating about it is I don't think it would actually be personally, especially if we had gotten ahead of it, um, all that costly to address. Um, we could have done it in a fairly low cost manner and I still think we could do it in a fairly low cost manner. Um, and we're just, we just do not seem to be able to reach that, that level of social consensus um, that would be required to do that, um, for many, many different reasons, but in part due to value, real value differences. I mean, I think that's part of the question too, uh, maybe just to stick with the authoritarian versus democratic question is, you know, part of what's going on with respect to climate change is people just have real values, disagreements on things like commitments to, or, um, obligations to, 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 to folks overseas or obligations to the future, or how they want to trade, you know, consumption against, other forms of, of improving their, their well-being. And these are just real differences. And I think there are right answers and other people think there are right answers and we're as far apart as can be. Um, and, you know, in a sense, it's a bug of democratic society that we can't seem to address this really seeming, you know, really pressing problem. On the other hand, we don't agree with each other about how pressing the problem is and how to address it. And so, you know, that's just the, given that a democracy is not going to let us move forward. So, so in a sense, is, is the failure of democracy there? Or is it just, this is a hard problem that we disagree about. And it's in some ways right that we aren't taking aggressive measures because to do so would just be to override that, that disagreement. Somebody wins and somebody loses. Yeah, I, I, I sort of agree with half of what you said. And I think I disagree with half. So the half I agree with is, uh, absolutely so, is this problem would have been really manageable if, if we would have behaved rationally, basically. Um, you know, that's why climate change book is called Reason in a Dark Time, for that reason. Um, I mean, there, you know, in 1992, there was a Senate, a bipartisan Senate bill to cut greenhouse gas emissions 
by 2000 to 1990 levels. You know, if, if, if that would have passed, it would have been a completely different world. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I agree, I agree with that. This is almost like a self-inflicted wound, at least to the degree that it is. What I think I disagree with you about, uh, and I'll put the point a little bit more, you know, really provocatively, and then I'll, of course, retreat quickly. <laughs> but to put it provocatively, I think the value differences are as much a function of the failures as the failures are a function of the value differences. I mean, why did we not act uh, when we could have acted? We, the reason we didn't act to a very great extent is, and this gets into the power of the state, is because the state chooses not to exercise its power to prevent massive misinformation campaigns on the part of fossil fuel producers and because we have a system of campaign finance that uh, in some other jurisdictions would just be plain illegal uh, and from a moral point of view uh, can certainly be described as corrupt. Um, and that has a lot to do with why that sort of consensus of the 60s and 70s broke down, uh, you know, had to do with private actors essentially being able to assert power and government not acting against them. I mean, mm. the, the weird thing about state power, in, I think, in a place like the United States, goes back to something you said earlier. The state does have enormous power when it chooses to act. I mean, look at what it's done to people who, who have spent time in Guantanamo, for example. Right. I mean, in a, in a, just an almost unthinkable exercise of state power. Um, but... but the the American state chooses to act remarkably arbitrarily from any reasonable point of view. And, you know, if you want to, you can talk about gun violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, you 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 can talk about um, you know policies with just broadly speaking anti-monopoly policies mm-hmm. in this world that we're now increasingly moving into, which. You know, at one point I was thinking we were going to be in a pre-New Deal world, and increasingly I'm thinking we're going to be in a pre-progressive era world, and, you know, if we go much further down this, this, this path. But, of course, the state will still have enormous power to imprison people and to do mm-hmm. all kinds of other things. So, so you're right. The potential power is there. Uh, the the question is organizing it and, 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 and getting it to act in the ways that it should. Yeah. I mean, it's a very, it's a, it's a very interesting, um, uh, kind of, uh, feedback cycle in terms of the, you know, demo, think of the structure of democratic deliberation feeds into values, which then feed into the, you know, the, the, the that structure over time. And we, we, rec- of course, we're recording this on, shortly after the news that the richest person in the world, <laughs> I believe, and certainly um, someone just with enormous um, uh, economic power is, is proposing to buy one of the major forums where political deliberation takes place. So this is Elon Musk's attempt to, um, to buy Twitter. And, um, you know, it, it, it does seem to be that there's almost an amplification of some of the uh, uh, of the of the of the um, dynamics that that you've been talking about, well, there is a lot of amplification. Some of which you've talked about on this on this uh, podcast, Mike. Uh, one of the things I've become interested in lately is the power of asset managers over mm-hmm. the, over the economy, and and, and you know and 
increasingly, at least some parts of the environmental community, thinking of asset managers as the ultimate regulators and mm-hmm. you know, potentially the ultimate uh, knights in shining armor. What a terrifying world in which you know, anybody could have such a thought. <laughs> Um, I hate to end the podcast on such a uh, a, dire, a dire note, but I feel like I've taken up um, a, you know a good chunk of your time. I, I don't know if you had any uh, any concluding ta- thoughts to, to to move us in in somewhat of the of the dire- direction of hope, or or maybe we should just end it there. No, no, no. I mean, I, I think um, the com- the conversation, which I've enjoyed very much, and I hope it's helpful to the listeners, has been in a certain note, but. I think, again, if we want to be really serious about thinking where we are, part of our disappointment, part of our apathy, part of our depression, part of our anger has really come from unrealistic aspirations. Hmm. Um, I I think we need to set our sights lower, not in the sense of, uh, of accepting things that ought not to be accepted, but in, but in recognizing that much of the job of government, much of the job of living an ethical life is to just make things a little better than they are. Hmm. Um, I'll, in fact, I'll end with an anecdote. Uh, a friend of mine who, who is a white Nigerian, he was, he was, he was born in Nigeria and at the time of uh, decolonization, you know, most of the white people fled. Mm-hmm. Uh, he stayed, and um, he became uh, a very a deeply respected person in Nigeria, um, kind of a national hero in Nigeria. And I remember, he's very old now, and I remember once uh, telling him how how much I admired him and the choices that he'd made in his life. And you know, how much he'd accomplished. And he just kind of shrugged his shoulders and said, look, he said, if I've done anything at all that's useful, it was just in trying to make people a little less stupid than they wanted to be. (laughs) And I think that's in its own way inspirational. And I think if we could succeed in doing that, we would have lived our lives very well indeed. Yeah. Well, that that is, is, I think... profound wisdom and so the perfect way to um to end the the conversation dale thanks so so much for joining me this was a lot of fun thank you mike i enjoyed it